Welcome to the Upper Perkiomen Community Church Podcast. Join us on Sundays at 258 Main Street, East Greenville, Pennsylvania. Refreshments at 9 a.m. Worship at 9.30 a.m. Or visit us online at upcconline.org. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy our teaching time with our special guest speaker. We're going to pick up right where we left off with Saul, who we've come to see is the first king in this experiment of God's people having a king over them. So he's not just the first, but also the current one. But as we've seen recently in the uh, chapters that followed, he's trying to kill David. Who we, know, who we have come to know as his best and most successful warrior and son-in-law. It's really in the Bible. This isn't like a reality TV show, although there may be one like this. I, I don't keep track with them anymore. But, um, so Saul the king is trying to kill his most noble warrior. And in many ways, chapter 19 parallels chapter 18. Okay, so we'll take a look here. We'll see in 18, as it starts off, we, we get a glimpse of Jonathan's friendship. Jonathan's friendship with David. And then in the next part, we see a war with the Philistines. And after this war, we see an evil spirit or a harmful spirit from God being placed upon Saul. And then after this, we see David and Saul's um, daughter, a relationship there between David and one of Saul's daughters. So it's, it's kind of neat to watch this progression, but I, I feel like after having gone through this in, in chapter 18, then we come to chapter 19, we go through it all over again. There's a lot of emphasis here that, um, you know, we, we really have no excuse for missing. In chapter 19, though, there are some differences, so that's what we're going to walk through today. And one of the first things we see is Saul's son protects David in verses 1 through 7. So let's go ahead and read that. 1 Samuel 19, 1 through 7. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. Verse 4. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. Now, in the first verse, we take a look at this, and 
um, having privately experienced failure after failure in his attempts to murder David, Saul then turns to a PSA. He He takes it to a public service announcement, and he requests the assistance of Jonathan and his servants in his efforts to murder David. And as we walk through the text, we see in 4 and 5, Jonathan, who is well aware of David's future place at the throne, which, by the way, should be Jonathan's rightful place as the son of the king. As he is well aware of this, he is pleading with his father to be reasonable and fair. He argues that David has not only been a bold and courageous warrior for Israel, he's been loyal and supportive as a servant to Saul. In his commentary, Firth says, Jonathan touches on Saul's most sensitive areas, but also demonstrates the lack of grounds for his killing David. He's trying to argue and and plead with his father. And it's interesting to know that in verse 5, you take a look at verse 5 again, Jonathan credits the Lord with the salvation of Israel through David killing Goliath. And I think possibly he's using that to point out God's blessing that has been placed upon David. He's telling his father, almost like a warning, I'm warning you, God is working through this man. We look at verse 6. Saul swears an oath to allow David to live. So at at this time, it, it looks as if Saul or Jonathan has persuaded his father to abandon his cause of killing David. And in verse 7, Jonathan then approaches David, believing that believing the best of his father, with, with everything that he's seen and heard from his father, he's still believing in the best part of him. And, and, he, and he tells David, it's okay to return. Come back. But after this first part, we then go to the second part where we see Saul's daughter protect David. So not just his, his son, we see his daughter get in on the act. We're going to start with verses 8 through 10. And there was war again. It's like, again? And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with his spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. It's it's amazing. In verse 8, we see each victory that David secures should bring Saul and his kingdom and his place on the throne. It should bring more security every single time. He's got the best of the best out there on his side fighting for him. But instead, it has the opposite effect. In verse 9, uh, we see that phrase again, a harmful spirit from God. Now, Pastor John is, has covered this uh, several times in previous passages. Uh, even though it's difficult for our human mind to understand how God could send both a harmful and profitable spirits to do his work, we consistently throughout Scripture witness that God not only blesses those he favors for their benefit, He also presses their adversaries toward foolish and destructive ways. 
We may not be able to completely reconcile those two thoughts, but we have to have faith and trust that that's, that's how God operates. And he's doing that in this text. As we keep going, we go to verse 10. Um, we've also seen this scenario before. So, quick question. If Saul's spear is, it's supposed to be like a symbol of his, his, his kingdom. If he throws it at David, does that mean he's giving his kingdom to David? No, not so much. No, we, we've seen him a couple times in this same exact scenario trying to kill David with his spear. And this time David escapes. But just as, as the Philistines earlier, a couple verses, fled away from David, their adversary, here David, Saul's servant, finds himself fleeing from Saul himself. As we go to verse 11, uh, 11 through 17, let, let's read that section. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messages to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of a goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? And if you go back to verse 11, uh, where it says that Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, her response to David was, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So then David says, babe, I've been appointed king, and if I stay and fight, I'm going to win. I'm just kidding. It's n- that's not in there. Um, he does. God actually uses Michael in a way to help him escape Saul's next attempt. In verse In verse 11, uh, another commentary that was very helpful, Brueggemann, said in his commentary, In verse 1, Saul's resolve is disrupted by the the phrase, but Jonathan. So as you're reading through the text, it says, but Jonathan. So it's kind of in opposition of what's going on there. In verse 11, it's disrupted by the phrase, but Michael. Saul's immediate problem is the powerful intervention of his own children. First his son and then his daughter who thwart him. In verses 2 through 7, Jonathan had been direct with Saul and persuasive in his rhetoric. We see the division between Saul and his children just widening each passing day. This division within this household. This household that is supposed to be representative of God himself. So David escapes. We look at uh, verses 12 through 17. Uh, Firth also in his commentary points out a recurring theme is the ensuing chase is that Saul is always just too late. This theme is emphasized almost immediately as Saul returns his messengers, instructing them to bring David back immediately, even if he is still in his bed. I mean, can you picture this? 
He is so jealous and, and angry and, and dead set on what he wants to do with David that he says, I don't care if he's sick. Pick up the whole bed and bring it to me. I don't care. And then in verse 17, we, we see this very interesting response from Michael. So she encouraged and helped David escape. <clears throat> but then how does she respond to her father when she's confronted? Now, we pointed out that Jonathan's speech to his father was very, like, positive and truthful and kind of God-centered, like pointing him back to the work that God was doing with David's life. But Michael's was negative and deceptive. She claimed that David threatened her. Although the narrator doesn't address this deception, we'll see later in chapters 20 and 20, 22 as we continue to study um, what it's like for an angry Saul to handle a situation like this. Spoiler alert, it is not good. So it, as she's watching Saul act this way, she responds and says, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? And as I'm reading, I'm like, what, what does David mean? Like, why, what do you say again? Why should I kill you? Basically what he's saying is, there's no reason for me to kill you, so let me go. So she's trying to imply to her father that, that David was saying, if you don't let me go, I'm going to kill you. And, and there's no reason for that, so I'm going to escape, kind of a thing. Um, so regardless of her intentions with what she had said, she helps protect David. So we see, as we walk through the passage, Jonathan protects David. Uh, Michael protects David, both being Saul's children. And then we come to the verses 18 through 24. 18 through 24 tells us how, how Samuel, uh, Saul's prophet, helps protect David. So let's look at 18 through 24. Now David fled and escaped. And he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth at Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to, to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Verse 22. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Secah. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth in Ramah. And he went there to Naoth in Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Now, Firth, in his commentary for uh, verse 18, he points out that David's movement is surprising and that going to Samuel means journeying about eight miles north and west, away from his power base in Judah. Yet Judah, and especially Bethlehem, may be where Saul expects him to go. So going to Ramah may be tactically astute. That means a good idea. Uh, Samuel had established himself as Yahweh's authentic prophet. He had anointed David, so it made sense 
for him to go there. Now, Naoth, when, when I was reading through this, I'm like, okay, so is, what is Naoth compared to, is Ramah like the, the state and then Naoth the city? Um, but what they believe it may be, it's probably better not a, a, a proper noun, so like a name of something. It's more just a description of like a camp or a hut. Uh, some, some have speculated that this might be the school of prophets that Samuel at this, at this time was probably leading and teaching these young men uh, in, in their prophecies. Uh, so so this, is, this is where he's going. He's going to this school, and David gets there, and he's with Samuel. And um, in, in Leon Wood's survey of, of hit Israel's history, he says, this prophecy or these prophecies, they were not a spoken message. The, they prophesied, in the sense, given the term in 1 Chronicles 25, 1-3, where Levites prophesied using the harp and thanking and praising the Lord. So Samuel's trainees were praising God in song as they came down from the high place in 1 Samuel 10.10. I do agree with Wood. When when you think of prophecies, I think my tendency is to think of someone who's like um, talking about a future event in a way that eventually comes true. But what, what I think this text is talking about is they're actually like singing songs of praise to God. And it may be in a more eccentric way, so in, a, in an unusual way, and that might explain the way that, you know, Saul is acting. So it might, might be a little louder or, you know, um, just in a more unique way than you and I would be singing. Uh, but as this narrative goes through, the, the one thing that really jumps out at us is the, the repetitive the repetition of the messengers going and prophesying in another set. So he does three times. And then we come to verse 22. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great, great well that is in Seca, and he asked, where are Samuel and David? And he finds out. So if anyone's familiar with that old um, Napoleon Bonaparte saying, if you want something done right, do it yourself. Maybe we need to credit Saul with that, because in this moment, as he is sending men after men, trying to accomplish what he's trying to do, I can just see the third time coming back. I would not want to be that messenger, I can tell you that much. But that third time when they come back and he finds out that they're stuck at this school and they are now prophesying like the rest, I can just see him just wiping everything off the table, throwing stuff down, and saying, if you want something right, do it yourself. And so he sets out on this journey to do it himself, which brings us back to 23 and 24. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets." Now, the overall story of Saul's life shows a significant amount of emotional instability. We can't really argue with that. That's clear throughout the text. Like, Saul is just very emotional. He is struggling with things like jealousy and pride and anger. But after trying to kill David twice by spear, seeing his daughter help David escape another attempt of murder, 
after seeing three sets of military men sent, sent to apprehend him, turned to singing praises to God, and finally finding David himself being favored and protected by Samuel, a man he highly regards, Saul is just laid out in total despair in emotional and physical exhaustion. The king, the king of Israel. At first, the text reads very strongly, but very strangely, but um, when you realize that what, what Saul was doing there with stripping off his clothes, he was disrobing himself of his kingly attire. And we see this earlier with Jonathan um, in, eight, in 18.1. Jonathan had displayed his love for David because he recognized his position in the nation. In resisting David, Saul is shamed in his nakedness. Jonathan's removal of his garments was voluntary. He voluntarily passed that right of kingship, the next in line, to David back at 18. And here in 19, Saul's are involuntary, yet it symbolizes the same thing. David will be king. Saul's kingdom is effectually over. Brueggemann, again, in his commentary on this section, he says, The pitifully embarrassing scene is that of this once great man. Do you remember when we first got introduced to Saul? He was head and shoulders above everybody. Still tall, but no longer great. Exhausted by demanding religious exercise. Clearly not in control. Shamed now rendered powerless in a posture of submissiveness. This was the king that the people wanted. This was the best that man could get. So what, is, what does that mean for us? Oh, there we go. So what does that have to do with me? I didn't word that right. Hopefully that was a helpful walkthrough about what the, te- what the text has to say and, and what's going on. But this is the part that I know everyone's like, okay, so, so what does that mean for me? I'm glad you asked. You see, everyone in this room, and in fact, everyone who, who may choose to listen to this recording later, has something in common. And it's the truth that Christ has taken the punishment that they deserve for his sin upon himself. No matter what your response is to him, he has already taken upon himself all the punishment that we should have. So I want to tell you about the gospel You see, the reason this story is amazing is because the Savior of the world comes from David's lineage. The Savior's story is told in the gospel. So what is the gospel? Well, it starts with God, as all things should. The beginning of the gospel is that God created the heavens and the earth. Everything starts from that point. And I know I've shared this illustration before, but it's like an arrow fired from a badly aimed bow. If you get the aim wrong, everything else doesn't matter. 
So we have to start with God and his creation of us, his creation of the world. And as you walk through Genesis and you see how everything is created, it expands in scope and importance every single day. First, we have the creation of light, then of sea, then land, then moon and sun, birds, fishes, animals. And then at the very pinnacle of God's creation work, man and woman. And that brings us to man. Man, the sinner. Everything in this universe has a purpose, including human beings. We are created. You are not an accident. You are not the work of your parents. I mean, you kind of are. But you exist. Your soul exists because God wanted it to. Every one of us is the result of an idea, a plan, an action of God himself. That brings us both meaning and responsibility in our human life. Now, because God created us, he has the right to demand that we worship him. But because of Adam's disobedience, sin has entered the world and entered our lives. And that sin has separated us from God forever. But God didn't leave us that way. He sent his son, which was part of his perfect plan from the very beginning. Christ the Savior. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. So Christ came to this earth. He lived a perfect life that you and I, no matter how many lifetimes we have, could never do. And in doing that, he became the perfect sacrifice and he willingly gave himself on the cross almost 2,000 years ago. And as he did that, God poured out his wrath upon our sins, upon his son, forever taking that payment. But after Christ, in the gospel, I don't know what's happening. There is a response. That response needs to be faith and repentance. Romans 3, 21 through 24 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So there is no, the law no longer binds us, and what, it, what the righteousness standard is for us is Christ's life, his perfect life. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. If you have repented and turned from your sins, trusted in Christ's work on the cross, and submitted to him being Lord over your life, you are his child. Not only are you his child, but you are his ambassador, and you belong to his kingdom. It amazes me how many times in the songs that we had and the scripture that was read that we referenced God's kingdom. I did not plan that. But I believe, we, I believe we have one more question, and it's this. Whose kingdom are you building? So we walked through this narrative. 
And it's just this story that happened in someone's life. We step back and we look at this life and we observe it and we go, okay, what can we learn from this? But as we step back even further, we see Christ coming out of this life that was spared David. And because of Christ, we have this gospel. And this gospel is freely given to all of us. And through this gospel, we have God's grace, whereby we can be restored in a relationship with God. But as we live this life, before we are restored in heaven to glorification with him, what are we supposed to do? We are to build his kingdom. If you go back to chapter 10, we see God raising up Saul and empowering him with his spirit. And here at the end of chapter 19, we see God empowering Saul again with his spirit, receiving praise himself. Everything in between, from chapter 10, the beginning, to 19, here where we are at the end with this passage, is complete disaster. Israel was to represent God to all nations, to be holy, set apart, in order to establish God's kingdom. In God's sovereign plans, he also created the church and commanded it to be holy and be set apart in order to establish his kingdom. What does the world think when it looks at the church? Does it see God's kingdom? Does it see dysfunction, anger, lying, abuse? Just as Jonathan pleaded with his father to consider the works that God was doing, I want to plead with you to consider laying up treasure in God's kingdom. Your earthly kingdom will end someday. I promise. But God's will last forever. If you are leading and informing your marriage with all your strength and all your might, but have neglected to ask God for guidance, you are laboring in vain. If I am parenting my children and demanding moral behaviors, but never mention God's desire for obedience, I am setting them up for frustration and failure. If you have been using your job to build your identity and, and haven't thought about who Christ says you are in him, you have an identity crisis. If you are planting a church because it sounds exciting and you want to be part of something bigger than you, you will not build it for his kingdom. So whose kingdom are you building right now, today, as you make choices throughout the week? Whose kingdom are you actively building? Is it yours or is it his? Let's pray. Father, I think about the music that we sang and the passages that were read, and I'm just, I'm, I'm reminded of the greatness of your kingdom. It is so much better than anything we can create ourselves. And we are laboring in vain if we do, 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 and check off boxes and don't rely on you. If we don't get in your word, if we don't pray to you and ask you for guidance, Please continue to work with us. Use the Spirit in our lives to guide and direct, to, to bring about fruit that can only be attributed to you. So the world looks at us, your kingdom here on earth, and says, wow, I want that. 
Lord, do this in our lives today and always until Christ returns in your name. Amen.